Good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. If you're a guest, let me welcome you. And what we normally do is we pick sections of the Bible and we just go through sometimes every verse, every chapter. And so we are working through Psalms. And so we're going to be here a while. Uh, and uh, we're at Psalms 14 this morning. I hope you've got some notes. They should look like this. I've got just a few fill in the blanks there just to keep you active. So hopefully you bring either your your device or your Bible, notes, something to take them, a pencil or a pen this morning. I want to look at this over the next two weeks, Psalms 14 and Psalms 15. And I, I want to be specific what I want you to think about and what I want us to be challenged by is that is, what is your worldview? How do you see life? You see, worldview is the glasses by which you see all of reality. It governs how you make decisions, how you relate to people. Psalms has something to say about it, and I hope you've been challenged. I've talked to many people. I'm sure I was even a little that way. I don't sit around all day and read poetry. Sorry, I don't usually. But most people that I've talked to said that they love Psalms more now than what they did not just for the hard seasons of our life, but because the Psalms is so richly theological and yet so, so amazingly practical. I want us to see that today in relationship to our worldview. We're going to talk about that. So stand with me to your feet in honor of God's word. Psalms 14, beginning in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You who would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And so, Lord, we lay our ourselves with our word open before us before you and say Lord help us show us Lord if there be a way now that we have adopted a worldview that does not correspond to who you are and what you've said Lord it will take a supernatural work from you to take off a pair of glasses that are worldly and put on a pair of glasses that you give us Lord but Nothing is impossible for you. And as we have been singing the gospel to ourselves, Lord, do your work in us as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you, every time we begin the Psalms, we try to understand, we try to get our orientation because Psalms has a point. And sometimes, as we said, sometimes it's a lament psalm. They're just pouring their hearts out to God. Sometimes it's corporate lament. Sometimes it's an individual lament. This is an individual lament. We are moving out of the laments and 
into a different sections of poetry. This is poetry put to music. They would sing this as they worshipped. But this is also a wisdom psalm. This, this has things in it that should remind us of Proverbs, and of the fool and the wise man. And then at the end, seemingly out of nowhere, the psalmist erupts into a prophetic. So we have three different things going on. And so I want us to see, when I'm, the message is directed towards two people, maybe if there's someone in the room that is a no-God person, that means that you have said, either by your profession or by your life, that there's no God. But even more so, I want us to equip us. How do we engage people with the gospel that don't have the same glasses? They don't wear the same glasses as you and me. And right now, because I'm, I'm getting old, you know, Mike's a little fuzzy out there. You know, I can see him, but, you know, he's not as clear as what he used to be. Do you understand that people with a different worldview than you, the way you see and the way you live, look sort of fuzzy to them? They don't understand it. And listen, sometimes we become a little too accustomed to pulling out a one-size-fits-all gospel track and lay it on somebody and appease in our conscience that we have proclaimed the gospel when we must understand how they see reality and begin to engage them. This is a worldview issue. Listen to this. Barna Research. Only 9% of adults who claim to be evangelical and only 3% of students have a Christian worldview. No matter who you are, no matter whether you get on a plane, you go to the other side of the world, or you go across town, everyone seeks the answers to the basic questions of life. Doesn't matter where you work. Doesn't matter how much people make. They seek the same things. They seek basically, stated in different ways, this is just the simplest way that I can state it, who am I? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Number three, what's wrong with this world? I mean, even, even the most worldly people know there's something wrong. Something's broke, even in me. Something's broken me. And how can what is wrong be made right? We're going to look at the fourth more next week. And we're going to celebrate communion together. I want us to back up. So turn with me to Psalms 8. I want you to see something. I want you to see the first two. Answer to these first two questions. The Lord reveals the truth about who we are and why we exist. He has told us. And what most people see is that Psalms 8 on this side and Psalms 14 on this side are bookends of a section that teach us about the doctrine of man. It starts out really good. Psalms 8, verse 5. Listen to this. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. This starts out with a pretty high, not only a high view of man, but great expectations for us. Look at some of these words. Crowned him. See that in verse 5? Glory. Honor. Giving him what? Dominion. Putting all things underneath his feet. You think, man, 
What should we expect from one who has been created with such honor and dignity and has been given such responsibility? What should we expect? High expectations. Wouldn't you think after you read this? You ever had a job review at your job? Oftentimes they hire you and they lay out maybe your job description and what your expectations are. At some point, 90 days in, six months in, maybe your one-year review, they're going to assess you. How you doing? This is what we hired you to do. Are you accomplishing that? How can you do better? So what this is at the beginning of this is laying out, this is the, this is the expectations of man. And what we get to in Psalms 14 is the worst possible assessment of man. High expectations. And then we get to Psalms 14 and we get the psalmist looking at man and God looking at man and making an assessment. But we see in Psalms 8, we begin to at least understand these first two questions that all people ask. Who am I? Because, listen, the people in our culture, by and large, have a secular, have a humanistic worldview. They answer these questions a different way. You've got to understand, we are living in a post-Christian society. We, cannot, we must stop assuming that people have a Christian worldview. Because they don't. Who am I? Look at verse 5. I am the crowning glory of God's creation. Created in the image of God. Genesis 1. I am created in His likeness. Unique from all other creation. That's who I am. That's the way a theistic worldview answers the question. Then why am I here? Look at verse 6 and 8. I am here to bring glory to God by stewarding, by ruling, by managing what God's entrusted to me. God gives it. I am underneath His authority. I, all my power and all my authority is derived from the Almighty. And I exercise it according to the way He gives it to me for one purpose, to bring glory and honor to Him. That's why I exist. That's why you exist. This is a Christian worldview. This is how we answer the questions. We'll talk about how the world answers them in a little bit. But the point is to start with, when you get to Psalms 8, is this expectation is high. Now flip back over to Psalm 14. And first we're going to have the psalmist assessment. Look at verse 1. Verses 1 to 3 gives his assessment. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now most people believe the the critical way to interpret this, to understand the very point of this psalm, is to understand, you see, there is no God. God there is Elohim. Elohim. We'll talk about that in a minute, but you might want to write that down. They're saying, literally, there is, is put there for our benefit. It's not there in the original. Literally, the fool says, no Elohim. No God. It says it in his heart. This is deeper than, this is not feelings, this is more intellect, but it's even more deeper than the intellect. This is getting into your very nature, the very core. The, remember the computer illustration, your hard drive dictates your app, what the, how the applications run. This is the very core of who he is, he's saying this. This is not necessarily what he's professing. This is what he says in the core of who he is. No God. You see, the fool is not the stupid person. He's not dumb. Matter of fact, most of the time, as we're going to see, they're quite intelligent. This is a combination of godlessness and senselessness. 
We're going to see how this works out as we begin to think about what we see around us in just a minute. But this is a godless senseness, even an aggressive perversion. He's aggressively perverse in the way he thinks, in the core of who he is. So, question is, he started in Psalms 8, and now he, how did he get this way? How did this happen? I mean, is this guy just an outright atheist? There's four different kinds, and this is just general. I just want us to show us this. They're in your notes. You want to write them down. They're on the screen. The first is an intellectual atheism, and this is probably the one most of us are more familiar with. This is just logically, God cannot fit into a, this, this intellectual atheist worldview. Because he cannot fit into the rational. He cannot fit into his mind. He cannot be touched, tasted, or felt. So he does not exist. By the way, universities have two or three more intellectual atheists than the wider culture. You understand that? When you send your kids off to college, the worldview that they're being taught is, is an intellectual atheistic worldview. But there's also the wishful atheist, which is maybe a little bit more agnostic. But here's what he says. I hope there's no God. I hope there's no God. Why does he say that? Because if there happened to be a God, he's in big trouble. But he's counting on it. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we have people who make wishful professions in their faith. When I would say something, tell me about the gospel, or how do you know, and these kinds of questions, they'll say, well, I hope I'm. You ever heard that? I hope I'm. This is the wishful atheist. I hope there's no God. There's also the speculative atheist. And God doesn't even cross his mind. His, he's been so hardened, his conscience so seared, that God just doesn't cross his mind. He, he's just not there one way or the other. He's apathetic about the things of God. But this Psalms 14 and what most of us see, not only in our world out there, but as the church oftentimes in here, is the practical atheist. Most people think that's what Psalms 14 is talking about this morning. The very practical atheist. In other words, the practical atheist lives as if there's no God. He lives as if there's no God. God doesn't factor in to his daily life. That's where Elohim comes in. See, Elohim means righteous judge ruler. So, do you see what he says? The practical atheist says, no judge over me. No ruler. Uh-uh. That's not my God. That God of the Old Testament. No, he's pretty harsh. My God's a God of love. We live in a judge-free zone. And so my God is able to be twisted and pushed like a wax nose to where I can control my God. This is the God I serve. Besides, my beliefs are personal anyway. So I have my own personal beliefs about God. Me and God's got a thing going on. We, we got a deal. They come up with a manageable deity. One that does not invade their personal life. Think about this. 89% of Americans believe in God. 89%, I ask you. Is 89% of Americans saved? 
They believe in God. Walk around from door to door and ask people how many people in Kings Mountain believe in Jesus. The problem is the devil believes in Jesus and he even trembles at him. He's not saved. There is a practical atheism. Paul wrote about that in Romans. Flip with me to Romans 1. Romans 1. Verse 21. Now listen to this. Remember the core questions. Who am I? Why do I exist? Listen to Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now just pause there for a second and think about that. They knew God. But they have forgotten or rejected why they exist. Why? Because they do not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him. Listen, they became futile in their thinking. See, it's the same thing. Paul's, Paul's basing what he's saying off of Scripture. Their foolishness in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to, wise, to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. The very things God put underneath them to rule and reign, they began to worship them. Remember his, the Israel's history? They didn't do away with God. They brought other idols alongside of God. Whatever we ascribe our value and our ultimate value in time to is our God despite our verbal profession. It's not original to me. I'm going to mention this a couple, several times. It's been impactful for me and helpful. Foolishness is not a lack of knowledge, but a failure to acknowledge God in trustful obedience. Foolishness is not the lack of knowledge, but a failure to acknowledge God in trustful obedience. The practical atheist says, no judge over me. It's not my God. This is the psalmist's assessment of man. And now we get this picture. Look at verse 2 of God looking, looking down at man. Assessing this man created in his image to worship him and to serve him and to enjoy him. To relate to him in an intimate way. And what does he see? Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if anyone understands who seeks after God. Here's this assessment. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalms oftentimes uses hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. This is not hyperbole here. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be a very clear, a very revealing truth of the assessment of man. Not only what the psalmist says that he sees, now God says, the psalmist is simply saying, the God of covenant, Yahweh agrees. Man's got a problem. You see what he says? They don't seek. They don't understand. You ever asked who's they? Preacher. They say, you're preaching too long. Now what am I going to say? Who's they? Right? Who is they? Tell me who they is. I want to talk to them. I got my clock right here. I hadn't preached too long. Who's they? We got a they here. They have turned. So who are they? Well, let's see what Paul says. Romans 3. Because remember, Romans 3 is based off of Psalms 14 and Psalms 53 that are almost exactly the same. Romans 3, verse 10. Now remember, 
What's the context of Romans? Romans 3. Where is, what is Paul doing? Where is he going? This is the theological treatise. This is the gospel where he's laying out the gospel. We know where Romans 3 is. Here's what he says. As it is written, so what's he doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What's wrong with the world? There's our third question. You know what the, you know what the Jews said? It's them Gentiles. They mess up everything. They bring their culture in here. Next thing you know, they're banging on the drums, right? That's not what the, the other group says. Gentiles say, it's them Jewish people, them religious people. They're just the biggest hypocrites on the face of the earth. The biggest bunch of hypocrites go to church every Sunday. That's them Jewish people. It's there what's wrong with the world. Colossians. I love Paul, but I guarantee if you'd had a very long conversation with Paul, he'd have stepped on your toes very quickly. As Paul laid forth, not only in Colossians, but also in Ephesians, what's wrong with the world? Here's what's wrong with the world. Colossians 1, look at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you who were created in the image of God to bring glory to Him in all that you do, instead, you do evil deeds and despise the one who created you. That's what's wrong with the world. You see, the atheist of this Psalms is not the outright denier of God. They're the ones who disregard his expectations. He, they're the ones where God does not factor in to the important decisions of their life or any decisions of their life. They reject accountability with God. Listen, when you reject the local church, you reject God. God saved you and brought you into a family. He called the family a church. They reject the accountability. And more importantly, we're going to see this. They have no love for others. We're going to see who they prey on in just a minute too. So, what's the difference? Between Christian theism and secular humanism. The air that we breathe every day. The air that our children breathe when they go to school. Who am I? Christian theism says, I am created in the image of God with dignity and honor. And not only I am created in the image of God, but the glasses that my Christian theism puts on with me says, so are you. From the cradle to the grave, men are created in the image of God. That's who we are. What does the fool say? The fool says, you are nothing. You are a blob of evolved cells. A little more than an evolved ape with opposable thumbs. That's who you are. You are nothing. Why are you here? Well, the Christian theist says... I am here to bring glory and honor to God with what He has entrusted to me. To relate to God in an intimate and a personal way. To use the power God gives me to bring glory to Him and to use the power that God has given me for the good of other people. But what does the secular humanist say? 
What does the secular worldview say about the answer to that question? Here's what it says. I am here to consume. I am here to use my power and to exercise it to get all I can. As long as I'm here because this is all there is. I am here. If you get in my way because I am powerful from you, I will exterminate you or I will subjugate you. That is not only what happens in the Bible. That has happened through all of history, even American history. You see, the fool cannot blame Hitler for what he has done because Hitler was just functioning and being faithful to his worldview. It is what the Darwinians have to believe. That the the powerful must dominate the weak. That is not a Christian worldview. And we must be careful unless we try to turn the American dream into a Christian worldview when it is not. It is far closely of the person that says, I will get what I need and I will step on anybody else who gets in the way. Who am I? So do you see the question then becomes, what's wrong with the world? 1908, the Times asked several authors to to answer this question. The question was, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was his answer. I am. What's the fool's answer to what's wrong with the world? We're basically good people. We are. We're basically good people. We just need a couple things. Just a couple. I need more education. And I need more government. I need the government to give me more resources, more opportunity, and more jobs. That's what's wrong with the world. If we just had the right government and the right education, it would be a utopia here on earth. We don't need God. This is the secular worldview. And see what happens. This is important. What happens in a secular worldview is they adopt new moral norms to function in their society and they oppose and they attack anyone who does not buy into their worldview and the norms that go with it. And it sounds a lot like, well, you know, what we really care about is protecting women's health. That's why we should allow abortions. We really care about women's health. And so this is, the, this is the foolishness, you see. The godless senselessness that says we're going to take care of women's health by chopping up babies. That's the new moral norm. Pumped in to our children with a vacuum cleaner going in the opposite direction. Our parents care for us our whole lives. And when they get old, we put them and lock them away and visit them twice a year. Or even... What's coming up now is we just give them a cocktail and get them out of the way. But besides, because besides, our worldview says when they're not profitable, they have no value. How about this? You ever said this? We can't afford children. We can't afford children. These new moral norms that we've been hearing says... Less children equals more responsible. Well, so what's wrong with that, Pastor? It doesn't line up with what Scripture says. This says children are a blessing from God. They are God's favor on you. They are not 
hindrances to your pleasure. See, this is what the secular worldview does. It imposes their moral norms on society and then attacks them when they don't. Think about this. We leave traumatized, victimized women and children into temporary homes while we adopt dogs and cats into forever families. And we even put bumper stickers on the back of our car to pat ourselves on the back because we love animals so much. But we murder babies and leave the victimized for themselves. What is wrong with the world? I am. I do not do what God has created me to do. The Lord reveals the truth about this and it should sober us this morning because this worldview does not stay passive. This view, this worldview is active. It is moving in a trajectory and it is going to accomplish something. So it has intentions. The Lord reveals the truth about the intentions of the ungodly. Verse 4, they have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people. As they eat bread and do not call on the Lord... Here's what scripture, here's what this is saying. Isaiah 9.20 is one of the clearest texts. They have the, the ungodly, this worldview creates an insatiable appetite. An appetite that cannot be quenched. Here's what Isaiah 9.20 says. They slice meat on the right but are still hungry. They devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. This is because the secular worldview says people just need a little more. You see, a heart's pursuit based in self-interest always devours the least of these. Think about your history. Yes, they attack Christians. But they will attack any minor people. The majority race dominates over the minority race. This is what they do. Hatred of God plus corruption of life indicates persecution of God's people and it usually ends up persecution of the least of these. People filled the churches back when while the oppressed people made in the image of God would not let them ride in their buses, go to their schools, drink in their fountains, use the same bathrooms and then called themselves believers. You see, that's just not conducive to a Christian worldview that sees everyone made in the image of God with intrinsic God-given value that no one can take away. It affects how they live, but the fool just wants to get. And here's what he said. Look at verse 5. There's this shift now. Now it's been those people. They, it's been the fools, been the ungodly. Now you have a different group of people. You see it? In verse 4, now you have my people. Now you got God saying something to the foolish person. Here's what he says. They, still, he's talking about the fool. Verse 5. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Literally, this is what he's saying. Elohim, the righteous judge, is within the generation of the righteous. That's why they are protected. That's why these, these intentions are futile. Because God's with His people. Here's my question though. How did they get righteous? I mean, if God looked down from heaven and says, no one seeks after God and no one understands, how did they become my people? 
We're going to look at that next week, but I want you to just see, just a, just a glimpse of this. Ephesians 2, verse 12, begins to answer the question, how can what is wrong be made right? How can what is wrong be made right? We see, but first we have to understand that there's something wrong. Remember, verse 12, that you at times, that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the common wealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. What's wrong? The wrong is our sin and our selfishness have separated us from a holy God. That's, what's, that's my problem. Look, at always good when the, when the Bible says, but, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's good news this morning. This is the same hope that the psalmist had. The same hope that David has was that in his Yahweh would not leave him or forsake him. Yahweh sees their plans and he will ruin their plans and he will ruin them with their plans. And so he says in verse 6, you would shame the plans of the, of the poor. You would do it. The wicked would do it. But the Lord is his refuge. It's the best news in all the world. Old Testament, New Testament, the message is always the same. God is with His people. Remember Colossians 3, 4, we're going to look at that next week. Christ, who is your life, when He appears. You see, Jesus just doesn't give you life. He is your life. That's the Christian worldview. And yet it boils down to this this morning. The same thing Psalm's been telling us over and over. There's only two groups of people. There's only the righteous. There's only the wicked. There's only the godly and the ungodly. And there's only one way by which man can be saved. And it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. This is the Christian worldview on what, how, do we, how can things be righted. For God's people. My people. What we see in verse 7 is amongst this doctrine of man that's pretty bleak. My people emerges in verse 4. And then his people begin to proclaim in verse 7. You see, the Lord reveals the hope of the righteous. So this goes from wisdom to prophetic. Just like that. Why? We just got through singing it. For freedom Christ has set us free. We remember I was captive. I was enslaved until God set me free. Remember this because we're not Jewish and we have to remember this lesson. Israel was not always Israel. Israel used to be a Jacob. Remember Jacob? He was a stinker. He was a deceiver. Had his own plans. He's had his own agenda. Doing what he had to do. Lying the way he needed to lie to make things work out good for him. But praise God. God made Jacob an Israel. And here's what he promises to Israel. Salvation is not just possible. It's promised. It's promised. This is what he's erupting. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Why? Isaiah 59.20 gives us a promise. And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. Redeemer. 
capital R. It promises something. It promised the psalmist something. Salvation that has not come yet, but it is coming. Matthew one twenty one says that salvation did come, and he came through one, and his name was Jesus. You remember? She will bear a son. Call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from his sins. You see, that's what's wrong with the world. My sin. My sin is what keeps me from doing what I was created to do. There's only one way that not only my sins could be removed, but that I may be declared righteous, where I may approach the God I was meant to live in relationship with. So what? Let's just go back through the questions. Do you know who you are? Here's what I'm afraid of this morning. That many of you have bought into the lives someone who told you something that you are years ago, and you're still living in that. You need to hear this morning, only God's truth really matters in your life. And if anyone says anything that contradicts what God says, who's wrong? Not God. So who does God say you are this morning? He said that you were created. The crowning glory of God's creation. You were created in His image to have a personal and intimate relationship with Him and to live that relationship out in the way we live in relationship with others. And we are supposed to use everything God gives us, whether it is a wheelchair or whether it is our infirmity or whether it is that we are the president, we are supposed to use it all for His glory. We receive it. Isn't this the lesson that we learn? What are we created to do? I am created in the image of God. And I am here to bring glory and honor to Him. Isn't it the sovereign reality when we see someone like Johnny Erickson Tata in a wheelchair living for the glory of God and she can't even move? That we can say that just because she's in a wheelchair does not mean that she cannot live out exactly what she was called to do. Matter of fact, she probably has more clarity about it than we do. You need to quit living under who someone else told you are and start living under who God says you are and start doing what God has called you to do. So, has what is wrong in you been made right? Because, listen, you should have figured it out by now. You can't make it right. Like like Pastor Micah said, we're in a pit so deep we can't get out of it. So how can it be made right? The Bible says clearly, not going to give you something to do. What scares me about decisional salvation? The Bible says right here, repent and believe the gospel. This is the message of the Bible. Repent of your sins before a holy God and put your trust in Jesus Christ to do what you cannot do for yourself. And here's what He promises you. He will save you. He will cover you with His righteousness. And He will keep you. It's good news this morning. Do you long for the salvation that's to come? We were talking before the service. And this is simply the truth. Sometimes when we're young, songs don't mean a whole lot to us. But as we get older, there are certain songs that become to be sweet to our ears. Why? 
Why are those songs more sweeter the older you get? Because the longer you live, the more sweeter heaven becomes. You begin to want to think about it. You begin to want to see it. Why? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be fully known. We long for a day that we will fully know God the way He already knows us. That's what we long for. We long for a day when the redeemed of the Lord will be fully and finally gathered together. Those that went before us that we have not seen in years, those that we've never met, the heroes of the faith all gathered together. You see, the psalmist doesn't live in some unreal world that actually thinks that his best life is now. But he longs for it then. The Bible is very clear. Every person who longs for it then lives in a particular way to bring glory to him now. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 is our closing verse and our closing prayer. Listen to Paul. To the church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the promise of the psalmist. It's the promise of us that our God that is with us will conform us into the very image so that we may do what God has created us to do. And that He will keep us blameless until He comes to get us. It's good news this morning for those of us who need it the most. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. Lord, I can hardly wait for next week to preach to see What you're going to teach us through the Word in Psalms 15. And Lord's always excited when we get to share communion with our brothers and sisters. But Lord, today, let us hear the sober, revealing truth of the doctrine of man. That men do not naturally seek after you. But every one of them desires to answer these questions. And so, Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for myself. Lord, we live in this world. This, the, the opposing worldview is the worldview of the day. And it has crept even into the church. Lord, bring your people to repentance. Lord, if there be a pair of glasses that, that I should not have on this morning. Or that your people, any of us should have on. Lord, would you take it off? Would you put on a pair of glasses that sees who you are and who we are in light of that? Lord, is my prayer today that if there is someone here that God is not factoring into their everyday life, that you would bring them to repentance and faith today. It only comes through the blood of your Son. Bring rest to your people today. That like the psalmist can say, 
We are the redeemed. The church of God. And now we stand and we sing as the redeemed. Because here's what we know. We are yours right now. And one day we're going to be with our Abba. And we long for the day. Until then, Lord, we believe you're gathering more of your children from around the world and from around this neighborhood, and we don't want to miss being a part of it. Lord, we now pray that you would receive our worship. Now, Lord, God, you are our Elohim, our Abba, the one who is sovereign and yet our daddy. Worship you today, Lord. Receive our worship. Respond as God calls you to respond. Stand with us and sing.